about you screwing up? A £10 note I was going to give to you, but I'm, <laughs> I'm keeping hold of it. <laughs> Actually, well, you can't crunch in no, your No, I know I was going to say, it, it wouldn't... Um, I miss I miss cash. Well, you could always still get some out. You can use I, it some I do, places. I do get it out. I do always have some with me, just, just in case. Have you yet uh, done that very uh, modern thing of tap and paying for a busker or somebody selling the big issue or somebody do like they, that? Do they take... They've got tap and pay now. Have yeah. they? Wow, I didn't know that. Okay. Yep. No, I really didn't know that. But I did notice the last busker I walked past, uh, which would have been at the weekend, uh, they they had their guitar case open and they're clearly, I think, put their own change in because it was very specifically kind of laid out along the case. And then he had a big sign saying, if you don't have cash... Don't worry. Don't worry, mm. tap and pay here. But it just took one brave person to go up and do it because obviously he couldn't stop all the time during every song to explain how to do the tap and pay. It was slightly tricky. So so the first person who went up worked it out and then told the next person who oh, came okay. up. It was kind of passed the info along. But we'll all get the hang of it one day, but yes. we're, we're in a frontier position. How much do you think we'd be in any way successful as buskers? What would our kind well, of you'd USP? Have your oboe <laughs> and I could just introduce you and then leave you to play the oboe <laughs> while I took around the hats. No, I think uh, I think you're on to something, and I think we could do an oboe and maraca combo. <laughs> it's never been seen before, but who knows? Eurovision, the next semi-final, we might be exposed to something along those lines. Uh, Hannah Waddingham, she was new to me um, because I haven't seen Ted Lasso. Uh, but she was all over the Eurovision semi-final last night. Everybody loves her, and presumably she'll be back on Thursday and on Saturday as well for the big final. Yeah. Statuesque. Very, yeah, very forceful. We've yes. had quite a few very forceful statuesque women, haven't we, over the weekend? Yes. Penny Mordant, Helen Waddingham. Yeah, who'd win that fight? <sighs> well, but obviously Penny's got a sword and Hannah doesn't have one at the moment. No, but she's got a football club. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah. I think actually Penny... Because I think to be able to stay that still for such a long time, I think that gives her an edge. Well, a sharp edge with mm. the sword. Anyway. Yeah. Right, we've got lots and lots of lovely emails. Can we just say we've got an email special coming up? It's like the old days, isn't it? Oh, yes, it's like the old days, except it's more fun. Um, and we'll have an email special on when will it drop? Uh, Friday. Yeah, so we're recording it tomorrow. So if you have sent in an email over the last six months and it's not been read out, then you just never know. We're going to have a great big trawl, aren't we, through the email cache. But you've gone straight to one that's entitled Naked Swimming. <laughs> bring, bring it on. Well, uh, this is from Lynn Parker, uh, who says, I too love swimming in the sea and, if possible, naked. As we were talking about how you cannot swim naked without smiling. It's one of life's mm. great pleasures. And even Jane agreed with that, Lynn. Uh, Never having been comfortable showing my body in public, my technique is to find a quiet spot, swim out, tread water, and then remove my cosy. I often did this on family holidays to Greece, where we'd drive to a deserted beach and I would enjoy the beautiful waters of the Aegean. How much would you like to be in the beautiful waters? Oh, please. I, re- I mean, I don't want to keep on sounding so negative. It's just that sprung, sprung, spring has not sprung in the UK and it's just still just on the cusp of something happening and abide something happening. I mean, just like 17 Celsius would be good and if it just stopped bloody raining, 
Yeah. Anyway, my vertebrae are damp. Yeah. One time I did this, I returned and felt so great, and we hadn't seen a soul all morning. I stood on the rocks and saluted the sea. Just as I did this, a small boat chugged from behind the headland full of tourists who were videoing the coastline. I've often wondered how many people have seen that video. Last year, now at 72 years of age, I tried the same thing in Wales. My cosy slipped off easily enough, but I struggled to get both legs back into the sturdy swimwear. I was eventually successful, but returned to the beach exhausted and with my swimming costume inside out. I don't think I'll be trying it again, which makes me sad because the feeling of the water slipping all over your body is fantastic. Then don't give up. Who cares about your swimwear being inside out? I bet nobody gave you a second glance because unfortunately, over the age of about 45, we as female swimmers are invisible anyway. <laughs> uh, but I commend you for your dedication to the art of swimming naked. And uh, yeah, don't give up. Please don't give up. Yeah. And from unrestriction and beautiful freedom, swimming naked in the sea, to um, tight garments, specifically girdles. Uh, I have triggered something in Lorna, who has memories of her medical career. This is because I mentioned my nana's, my nana's, a girdle, which I was occasionally responsible for tightening as quite a young girl. And I have to say, probably a responsibility that shouldn't have fallen to me necessarily, but I was honoured to be asked. And by the way, Mary Esther would be absolutely thrilled to know that she's still being discussed and in podcast form some decades after her, her death. So um, if, you, if, she, if she is listening in some way, um, she'd be chuffed to hear that she was still very much part of my life, and she is actually. Um, Lorna says, um, I'm a newly retired doctor, and your story about girdles vividly, vividly brought back my first years of working. Um, they were in a large Victorian red brick and soot-blackened stone general hospital containing multiple nightingale wards. Now, do you remember these nightingale wards? Because um, they were a thing. They were very much traditional in most British hospitals because they were rows of metal beds down either side, as Lorna describes. Very high ceilings, and that was for ventilation against infection. Enormous arched windows and balconies, so you could wheel the patients out onto the balconies. But there was very little patient privacy. It was only the 1980s, but it sounds much longer ago, says Lorna. All the old ladies, who must have been born realistically in the early 20th century, were very attached to the pink or peach satin laced corsets that they all wore. Usually there was a quick-release seam of dozens of hooks and eyes. The corsets did nothing to disguise the girth of these ladies, but getting them out to be examined and then back in to maintain their dignity added hours to my working day. I am forever grateful for the ease of removal of modern underwear. And then she says, oops, you know what I mean. Well, yes, we do know what you mean, but you're absolutely right. Underwear back in those days was really, really rigid and just complicated. And as Lorna says there, hugely time-consuming. Whereas now, with these enormous knickers that are, you know, they're just on and they, are, and they stay on. Right. <laughs> I don't think we want to dwell on that No, too no, much, but you know Jane. what I mean. Just, I do know what you mean. They're just not, there's no effort involved. I think just the, the time before which elastic played a major part in clothing terrifies me. So the idea of uh, going about my daily business, everything that I do from chores in the morning to walking the dog to mm. coming to work to sleeping, I am in some kind of elasticated clothing. And it's we are so much more comfortable as oh women my God, than yes. we would have been a hundred years ago. Yeah. I think that's a very I think you're right to point to a, an under celebrated area of female life. 
um, the freedom to wear garments that actually don't constrict you. I know some people love a basque and they can look amazing. Say that again. A basque. What's wrong with that? What do you call them? No, I just love the pronunciation. I'm not going to make a comparison at all. Well, that's lovely. Okay, thank you very much. Um, Go on then. What? Oh, well, I wanted to mention drones. Oh, OK. Uh, well, I just wanted to give a recommendation which comes from Amy in Manchester who says a number of times you've pondered whether men talk about the issue of violence against women and girls and if so, what is said. And I thought you might be interested in the fantastic documentary The Feminist on Cell Block Y. Have you heard of that? I haven't. No, no. OK. Uh, so, which at the time of writing can be found on the YouTube. It's set in a Californian prison and covers a programme of workshops run by a group of male prisoners for fellow inmates. There are lectures on subjects such as toxic masculinity and patriarchy, and the course has a strong feminist underpinning. The participants are articulate and insightful and talk openly about their thoughts and feelings. They draw links between how buying into toxic views of what it is to be a man led to their lifestyle choices and prison sentences. And you see them discussing the work of bell hooks, rape culture, their previous conceptions of feminism and of women as other, how they were parenting, how they were parented, etc. It's fascinating and I highly recommend it. That sounds amazing. That really Amy. does sound interesting. Uh, so I'm going to go in search of it. The feminist on cell block Y. I might have to wait until after Eurovision if that's okay, just because I really want to maintain the joy that Eurovision gives me up until I can enjoy it no longer, and then I'll dive straight back into that. But that's such a good recommendation. Do you know what? There are there are some things that come out of prisons, aren't they, in a creative sense, which are... Oh, prison radio is a big thing. Exactly, yeah. which are absolutely superb. Ear Hustle is the podcast... Mm, that uh, is so good. ...which is made by inmates uh, yeah. in American jails. And if you've never bothered to listen to that, I'd recommend that too. There's amazing talent in that podcast, actually. Truly amazing. Um, Sean, uh, it was just talking about... We were discussing the Coronation Concert and the Extraordinary Light Show. Uh, And Sean says, the big things in the sky that you referenced uh, are actually hundreds of individual small drones, fee with a light on each. And a computer programme moves them around in the sky. Um, all sorts of people listen to this tosh and we're very grateful Sean casually drops in that he worked on the G7 in St Ives in Cornwall and there was supposed to be a display in Carrows Bay with all the heads of state duly watching on being enchanted and enchanted and entranced but the American Secret Service stated that they would need to check every single drone before the display could go ahead So the event was cancelled as nobody in the British government had the backbone to tell them to pack the old man off to bed and the rest of us can continue to enjoy the party. Well, um, I suppose you can see that they might find that a little bit tricky. Um, Presumably that would have been that would have been Biden, wouldn't it, at the G7? Or was that still Trump? I can't remember when that. uh, All I remember about that is that um, the young Johnson baby was really very small. And was wandering along a beach. Yes, it was the Bidens. Yes, it was yeah. the Bidens, yeah. Definitely was. I'm just trying to picture. All I can think of is uh, Carrie had an amazing pink dress on, didn't she? Uh, which turned out to be uh, from a rental, dress rental agency. It was the first time that I'd ever heard that there was such a thing. Uh, sorry, gone off on that. Uh, that's so interesting, Sean. How annoying to just not have been able to say 
Uh, why don't we just pack off the dignitaries, you know, because none of us really care if a drone explodes over yeah. head, although I suppose you can't really say that, can you? But what a shame. Well, All the work that went into there it. There will have been a lot of work put yeah. into that. And um, just because they selfishly wanted to keep their president safe. Yeah. But, I mean, why, I suppose, are they... Yeah, they are. I mean, they are more globally significant, aren't they, than anybody else attending the G7, I guess. So that's that. Just got to live with it. Well, I hope you had your own tiny private drone show somewhere else, Sean. Mm. Uh, and yes, what an interesting job. Uh, can we say hello to our colleagues uh, Stig and Asma? Uh, you're going to start reading Asma's book, uh, A Pebble in the Throat, which is the memoir that she's written alongside her mum, which is out, I think, next week, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is next week. Next Thursday. Uh, I know that I've said this before, but I'm just going to say it again. I think it's a superb book. You and I have known Asma a long time. I haven't known her very closely as a friend, but we've all, you know, we all worked together, haven't we, for... 20 years really and I had no idea about uh, how much racism she had been on the receiving end of in her early years in Glasgow and it's a really really amazing book because the way that she talks about everything that she's seen and been through is in no way self-pitying or self-aggrandizing or uh, it's or, or kind of over-revelatory. It's just so factual about how her life changed and her personality changed because of what cruel, prejudiced people said to her at school. I think it's just amazing, Jane, mm. and I really, I'm going to look forward to hearing what you think about it too. Well, I'm definitely going to read it and I will absolutely let you know. Um, it has, uh, it's made me think, just listening to you now, about how very different things were. So asthma is certainly not as old as me, but racism uh, back in the 70s was very, very real. And I speak as someone who was white and therefore not the victim of racism, but lived amongst it and frankly, didn't do anything at all to stop it happening because there was a part of me that was just grateful they weren't picking on me. And I suspect that also would have applied to lots of other people in the class. Well, I think what struck me as well about Asma's book is uh, the experience of her mum. So the memoir is written between the two of them. Uh, so they talk about uh, their... Well, her mum talks about her start in life in uh, Pakistan and then coming to Glasgow. So you've got two pairs of eyes witnessing the same things and it's just remarkable i just really 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 enjoyed the book uh, so i heartily recommend that to everybody at uh, stig's book as well because it's difficult isn't it at uh, sharing a breakfast show they're two very successful published authors now uh, i don't want any competition between the two of them so we had stig on our program when you were away okay. uh, with jane mulcairns and we enjoyed his book very much too and i just want to say a big thank you to him as well today because he bought us both a twirl you're all over him yes thanks Stig. no i'm not all over him I wanted to say thank you because it was a very sweet thing to do well I'm now a twirl convert it's been quite a couple well, of weeks well I tell you what you're a twirl turncoat because you've gone from slagging it off and not quite being flaky enough to be a flake I thought it was an insubstantial snack with a funny aftertaste but I said to you they've changed the recipe because this is very very edible now okay well you enjoyed Stig's twirl too so there we go that's uh, that's colleagues ticked Yes, I don't think we can do any more. If anybody else on Times Radio has written a book, just leave us alone for the time being, will you? Because we're, we're, we're dead busy. Surfeet.
of it. Yes. Uh, um, shall we introduce today's yes, guest? Yes, today's guest is an interesting woman. Uh, she's Joanne Harris. Uh, she was, I think, well, she told us a little bit about it off air, actually, <laughs> uh, that she'd been an accountant, she'd been a teacher, hadn't she? And then she very casually, while she was a teacher, wrote a book that sold a million copies <laughs> called Chocolat, a hugely successful. And, of course, it became uh, a film as well with Juliette Binoche. So she's had all sorts of success, Joanne Harris. Uh, she's also the chair of the Society of Authors. And in that role, um, I think it's fair to say there has been a degree of controversy, which we do discuss uh, towards the end of this interview. But her new book is called Broken Light, and it's about a menopausal woman called Bernie Moon, um, somebody who's really not had much choice about doing anything other than putting other people front and centre of her life. In other words, she's never really come first, not even in her own life. But in Broken Light, she comes out of the shadows and unleashes magical powers. So we started by asking her about her central character in Broken Light, Bernie Moon. Well, Bernie Moon is quite forgettable in a lot of ways. She's very ordinary. She's led a quiet life, which she is mostly devoted to her slightly disappointing husband and her even more disappointing son. She was unpopular at school. She had one friend there who she's not stayed in touch with. And she's quite a sad character. Um, and she's a bit of a loner. She works in a bookshop. Um, and she doesn't really have much of a life at all. And is approaching menopause with a lot of the distressing menopause symptoms that we're just hearing about now in the last few years in public conversations. Um, and she has an attendant problem, which is that she has also developed a superpower. Um, and this book is a kind of a little nod to Stephen King's Carrie, in a way, I guess, because Carrie gets her superpowers at puberty, which is an objectively terrible time to give anybody superpowers, and particularly, you know, teenage girl, they're full of drama. Of course it ends terribly badly, but what if Carrie had instead got her superpowers with menopausal hormones instead right. of puberty? And so that that is the premise of my story. I was trying to remember the very end of Carrie. Do you remember the end of Carrie? I wouldn't have been able to remember the end of Carrie because it was too frightening to get Everyone even more dies. than halfway through. I remember just a bucket of blood being tipped over somebody's head at the end of Carrie. Is that Absolutely, the right film? it's terrible. She <laughs> is. She is. She is invited to the prom. That's it. She has a wonderful evening, but her enemies are lying in wait for her tip a bucket of blood onto her head instead of the glitter that she expected to get for being crowned prom queen. And she quite rightly explodes, sets everybody on fire and self-immolates, basically. It's a very sad story and, and not not one that I wanted to, to recreate. So my, no. my Carrie is much quieter than that and her superpowers are much quieter than, than Carrie's. Still effective, though, aren't they? Well, yes, I think, you know, superpowers don't have to be aggressive. They don't have to be about setting people on fire. All they have to be is different. Mm. Can we just talk a little bit about the murder? Um, there is a murder in Broken Light of a woman called Jo Perry and she was out running and she was wearing a sweatshirt uh, that's marked Feminist Killjoy yes. across it. And uh, it's really interesting. There's a part in Broken Light where uh, we see what people are saying about this on social media and it's so true to life. It, make, it really made my stomach churn, churn reading the comments because they're all comments you know would be made, largely by men saying things like, well, what was she out running for? Yes, what was, what she, was she, doing? she doing at night? What was she doing? Yes. Yes, I, I know. It's a terribly sad thing. And, and in fact, because I was writing this book against the background of partly the Sarah Everard murder and also some other murders that didn't get quite as much publicity as that one, I was able to find quite a lot of fairly authentic stuff online on Twitter, some of which I've adapted 
and and semi-quoted. And so these are all basically things that people really said, horrible though they might be, and, and they reflect a kind of victim-blaming mentality, I think, that, that means that when something happens to a woman, the first question that's asked is, was it her fault? And you know what's really upsetting, Joanne, is that some of those comments are made by women too. Yes, and oh, yes. it's still incredibly topical. Uh, the case of E. Jean Carroll today, I was yes. looking online at the comments that people are making, and some people and some women are all saying, not all, are saying, well, why doesn't she remember? She doesn't remember the date. Why doesn't she remember? If that had happened to me, I'd have remembered. Yeah. Why is that still front and centre of some people's minds? Well, I think that, you know, we live in a patriarchy. The patriarchy gives us certain narratives about what a woman's behaviour is supposed to be and internalised misogyny is a thing. I think it's it's very easy to buy into some of these narratives without realising that actually what you're serving is is not in your best interests to serve. And, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, the world that we live in has, has a tendency to, to look at victims sometimes in quite a negative light and to judge them in ways that, that really are not appropriate. A victim is a victim. Would you have been able to write this book a good few years ago or is there something around the more open conversation about the menopause which meant it was easier to cast the protagonist in that particular part of her life? I don't think I would have been able to write it ten years ago because, well, I think some of it has been partly at least informed by events and also personal experience. I wouldn't have written about the menopause without having been through the menopause and having known something about the physicality of the symptoms and also the attitudes of people like doctors, some of the things that that surprised me when I was going through menopause about, you know, I, I gave Bernie... Um, an episode where she goes to her doctor and explains her symptoms and he says, oh, yes, you're menopausal. And she says, well, is there something we can do about it? And he says, well, yeah, I could prescribe you HRT, but maybe we should just let nature take its course. This is exactly what my GP said to me. Um, and I thought, well, you know, if there was something that could have helped, why didn't you offer it? But I think sometimes that there is still, you know, a little bit of shame and a little bit of judgment attached to these things that are completely natural right yes attached to what just getting older because that's all yes. it is getting older and having physical symptoms that other people may find distasteful mm. or disgusting or upsetting or unappealing or unfeminine or all the things that we're frightened into not being as as young women because you know, that might be the end of the world that some random guy on Twitter might not find as attractive. <laughs> um, I know you use the term um, flashes and not flushes. I do, yes. And um, I, it's quite interesting because I don't, I don't have hot flushes or flashes anymore thanks to H, the wonders of HRT. And oh, well. I always felt they were more of a flash than a flush. But a lot of British people have taken exception and said, oh, you should be saying flush, not flash. Well, I'm a bit disappointed in them in that way because anybody who knows me and who knows my books should really have asked themselves the question, why did she choose that word? Well, tell us why. Because I think, you know, a hot flush is something that we understand. It is something to do with the physicality of going through menopause. But Bernie's hot flashes are something slightly different. Yeah. They are what herald this ability to penetrate somebody else's mind, particularly the mind of a predator. And so they are flashes of fiery intuition, if you like. Again, it's a kind of play on carry, but it's, it is also specifically not just a menopausal symptom. It is um, an episode of psychic connection, if you like. And I wanted to make a distinction between those two things. 
which, which is why I chose that, that word. What do you hope a much younger reader uh, will enjoy about the book? Because some people have said that the current conversation about the menopause, which you know we in our generation, I think, find incredibly helpful, bordering on glorious sometimes, could actually be making younger women fearful of an inevitability, a point in their life that might be all right or it might be horrendous. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand that completely and and we are still having conversations about it which make it better than not having conversations about it. It is nothing to be to be feared and, and I think as we normalise conversations around it, it will be a good thing and, and it will be less of a, a kind of lurking monster and I think that's that's certainly a good thing. But I think young readers will will perhaps identify with other characters in here because it's a book that has a number of women from different generations, different backgrounds. I deliberately wanted it to span the experiences of as many diverse women as I could think of because I think too often we have this idea that there is a sort of bit of a monoculture of the way women are represented in some kinds of fiction and I wanted to to challenge that a bit. And so one of the, the main characters, Bernie's close friend, is Iris, who is who is only 22 and who is as different to Bernie and her experience as you could possibly imagine. And and I wanted to give Bernie a friend from a different generation for that reason, so that you know, so that it wasn't just ladies of a certain age getting together and discussing the menopause. Will it be filmed? Do you think? Because I wonder who you'd like to play both Bernie and Iris. Oh, I would love it to be filmed. Um, I don't know. I'm, you know, I, I I would love to see Olivia Coleman play Bernie. Yes, good, um, good pick. As for Iris, well, you know that there. Are, I think a, a young unknown actress who can play at the same time vulnerable but also strangely bolshy and psychopathic I think is a great part for somebody to be discovered in. Yeah, also would... you get to have cool pink hair which I've always rather fancied having myself and so I gave it to Iris instead. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Um, Joanne, I think we've established that your book is a book about women. It's largely, I'm going to say, for women, but there are important male characters. And I wonder whether you... Do you feel sorry for men and their place in the world and how women are challenging it. I just want to quote something from Woody, who's not a very likeable man, who's in your book. Uh, and you write of him, it's the feminists, they're the ones who've ruined things. Before that, he thinks there were certainties. Men and women knew where they stood. Men were the providers, the protectors, the heroes. Women wore frocks and respected themselves. Uh, and back in those glory days, uh, if you were a, an average uh, white man, frankly, uh, things were simpler for those men. And they're harder for them now, aren't they? Perhaps they were simpler, but I'm not sure that necessarily means they were better. Sometimes simplicity is reductive and also sometimes it eclipses other people and gives them a worse life. Um, I think if, we, if you're living in a patriarchy, really nobody benefits that much. I don't think anyone benefits from making other people feel unhappy or marginalised. And, and the reason that I, I wrote Woody the way I did, and he is 
objectively quite an awful human being. Really but I is. also wanted people to understand where he was coming from and understand that although he, is, he does some quite dreadful things and says some quite dreadful things, he is not happy under the system that exists. And the system is a system created by men to serve men. And it, it really doesn't. It doesn't serve anybody. Um, and so that the men here are not the villains and the women are not the heroes. It's, it's, it's much more complicated than that. And I've, I hope that I've tried to, to make everybody fully human rather than just representative of a type. Now, you've mentioned uh, Twitter, I think, and you are, you're active on Twitter, aren't you? You're somebody who talks to people on Twitter. You've, shared, you've been through breast cancer and you've shared your experience of that on Twitter. You're actually rather a public author. Not every author is as public as you are. No, it sort of worked that way. I think, you know, because I was a teacher for 15 years mm. and, and I had a staff room that I would sometimes go to during lessons or between lessons and grab a cup of tea and talk for 30 seconds to someone before dashing off again. I think Twitter, in a way, has become my, my staff room. Um, and it, it gives me my news a lot of the time, connects me to people that I wouldn't normally see very often. And I've met a lot of people on Twitter who I've later worked with. I, I wrote a musical with Howard Goodall because of something that started on Twitter. I, you know, I, I script doctored the Wombles movie for Mike Bat because of something that happened on Twitter. And few of us can say that, Joanne. All sorts of funny <laughs> things have happened to me because of Twitter. And it, it connects me, I think, you know, because I live in the north and I spend much of my life in a shed. Um, it's quite nice to have... <laughs> a connection with people, and particularly with lockdown. It was, it was a bit of a lifeline, actually. So in your capacity as the chair of the Society of Authors, you got into... Well, I'm not, I mean, you tell me, because I'm not sure Twitter spat is quite the right term for what happened, but you were involved in an exchange of views or you faced an accusation that you hadn't defended J.K. Rowling very vehemently or very vociferously after she'd faced death threats. What do you want to say about all that? Well, I haven't said anything about that on Twitter and I'm not going to, not even for clicks or the kind of clicks that I'm expected to look for on Twitter. I have said absolutely nothing negative about J.K. Rowling and I think that anybody getting death threats is absolutely unacceptable and I've said that too. Um, that has absolutely nothing to do with my role of the Society of Authors because my Twitter account is a personal account. So, you know, people who have conflated those things are really just people of bad faith who who haven't really wanted to examine what they were talking about. Well, of course, I, mean, say something I think it's fair to say, Joanne, that there's nothing the patriarchy likes more than a ding-dong between Absolutely. two middle-aged women. I Absolutely. Mean, it... I think women attacking each other is exactly what the patriarchy wants, which is why I'm not going to badmouth a colleague or make any differences of opinion a, a, a way of, of allowing people of bad faith to keep the status quo going rather than examine the, the problems with it so no it's it's I think this this is something that we see all the time um, I think any any feminist looking at feminists attacking each other needs to say who does this benefit it benefits the patriarchy and actually I say quite a lot about this in the book too about you know women needing to understand each other's experience and pull together and 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 be friends because I mean one of the things in the original the original carry is the the, the woman on woman nastiness in there that I wanted to remove from that story because it's a very male trope. Where do you think we are on the journey to both sides of the arguments about trans rights at the moment? If you were to take a long view, where are we right now? I don't know. And I think just the fact that you've said both sides of the argument implies that it's a binary discussion. I don't think it is. I think that 
the experience that people have is so personal that it's unfair to ask anybody to comment about a whole group of people, even if they could. Um, and I don't think it's useful. I think social media has polarised an awful lot of thinking and has simplified and reduced conversations to a question of sides. It isn't a football match. This is, this is society. We live in a, a society which is changing. We need to be inclusive. We need to stick together. We need to look at the experience of marginalised people without fear. Um, and that's it, really. I, 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 don't, I don't think anybody should be asked to speak on behalf of an amorphous group of people because I don't even think those groups of people exist. That is the author Joanne Harris. Um, Joanne Harris, <laughs> if you pronounce it, which way you pronounce it? I sort of made a bit of a meal of it the first time. <laughs> she is half French, so she may she may use it in that way. I don't know. Um, so we ended by talking about her, and it's been I think it's been quite controversial that business with her at the Society of Authors. I am very much aware. As soon as you start saying the Twitter row, Society of Authors, it, you disappear down a quite wonky and to some people completely irrelevant area of discussion that has no impact on their daily life whatsoever. But nevertheless, um, there were a lot of people who loved the notion of Joanne Harris and J.K. Rowling having a row. That's that's indisputable. Yeah, and I completely take her point uh, that the there shouldn't be one side says this and one side says that when you're talking about people's lives, transgender people's lives. But it boils down to that too simplistically and that's where most people can actually have the conversation and hold the arguments in their head mm. is one person's thinking that, the other person's thinking something different. And I, you know, she has a far greater wisdom and experience of transgender issues than I do, possibly than you do. So she can see that bit in the middle and all the nuances within it. But I I don't know. I, I, I wonder how we're going to get to a better understanding. I think both those positions seem so entrenched now. It seems to get louder and louder. There's a big ding-dong about the Oxford Union, isn't there? Well, yes, because they're uh, having Kathleen Stock to uh, talk to them. I mean, I always think stories about the Oxford Union punch above their weight because most of us didn't go to Oxford, don't really know what it is. They do, but you made the very good point today that why it matters at the Oxford Union, and uh, for people who are listening and are thinking, oh, I've got to go and Google who uh, Kathleen Stock is. She's a professor who was at the University of Sussex who very firmly believes that your uh, biological identity is your gender identity. And she uh, left, well, she says she very much had to leave yeah. the University of Sussex. I think she did have yeah, to leave. Because uh, trans groups uh, didn't like what she was saying at all. So she's been no-platformed quite a lot uh, over the last couple of years, but she's speaking at the Oxford Union. But your brilliant point was, the reason why it matters, Jane, is because so many of the people at the Oxford Union by dint of the fact that they're there at the moment, will be the future power makers. So nearly every member of the Conservative cabinet, not now, but about mm. 10 years ago, was a member or president of the Oxford Union. So they go on to have far more power and influence than, dare I say it, even your eye. What? So that's why it really matters, doesn't it? Yes, it, yes, it does matter. I, I think I, I'm, I don't want to be sort of, you know, all anti-woke because, as you know, I'm a crop-haired, head-banging feminist and have been for some time. Um, but the fact that, that the reason that the Oxford Union and Kathleen Stock were in the newspapers today was that um, students had been offered counselling 
if they were in any way uh, discombobulated by what, what Kathleen Stock had to say. And actually, interestingly, one of the students who was quoted mentioned that it had, they'd had an, a porn performer speak to them a couple of weeks ago and nobody had been offered counselling on that occasion. Um, you know, we could go on and on forever. I mean, if I was offered counselling every time I came across someone with the audacity to disagree with me, I'd be, as you know, I'd be locked in a room having permanent counselling. You would. You'd be there 23 hours a day. I yeah, completely really agree. And also, if you think you're going to be offended by something, just don't go. Really, seriously, just don't well, go. Well, that's a good you tip. Too. Yeah. Yep. Stay and in and do some work, you students. Can I just say, uh, but just before we go, that I know in the past we have promised that we will uh, try and be much more sensitive actually about the whole trans argument at the moment and actually to hear more voices of people with lived experience so we are still on the case about that and I think actually that's the only way to solve the polarised problem isn't it it's just to hear more stories because not you know it's not a one size fits all thing is it? No, people's stories are what, I was going to say this what makes the world go round (laughs) Well, that's actually gravitational force. What? You see, you're disagreeing with me, and now I need counselling. <laughs> sort it out. <laughs> oh, dear. oh dear! Don't be offended by offer. Please don't be. And join us again at the same time tomorrow, kids. That's it from us. I'm going to take these post-it notes home. Oh, she's Robin from the office. That's disgusting. Well done for getting to the end of another episode of Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times Radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Henry Tribe. And don't forget, there is even more of us every afternoon on Times Radio. It's Monday to Thursday, 3 till 5. You can pop us on when you're pottering around the house or heading out in the car on the school run. Or running a bank. Thank you for joining us and we hope you can join us again on Off Air very soon. Don't be so silly. Running a bank? I know, lady. A lady listener? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs>